Peace be with you. I, uh, I think it was about a little over a year ago I got to come and visit and preach on Isaiah 55, and it wasn't part of the sermon series y'all are in now, uh, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, of course, read Isaiah before, but this is the first time I actually got to study it in depth. Um, it's a beautiful book, uh, and so just delighted to know that you guys are doing Isaiah 40 through 66, which is amazing, and I'm really excited to be able to look at Isaiah 51 with you. Um, yeah, if you want to go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be covering, my intention was to do the first 16 verses, and I started to get into it, and there's so much good in here that it, I told my dad, I was like, I'm just going to do the first eight verses. So we're doing the first eight verses. I'm going to be reading out of the CSB. Uh, The word of God reads like this. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you. When I called him, he was only one. I blessed him and made him many. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and melodious song. Pay attention to me, my people, and listen to me, my nation, for instruction will come from me, and my justice for a light to the nations. I will bring it about quickly. My righteousness is near, my salvation appears, and my arms will bring justice to the nations. The coasts and islands will put their hope in me, and they will look to my strength. Look up to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die like gnats. But my salvation will last forever and my righteousness will never be shattered. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my instruction. Do not fear disgrace by men and do not be shattered by their taunts. For moths will devour them like a garment and worms will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever, and my salvation for all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) It's all good. That's that's where I'm at. Uh, Y'all can take a seat, and I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our ears uh, and move us to pay attention to what you have for us this morning in this text. Um, I pray that you would give me true words to speak, and that the uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you. Um, I pray that you would humble us and make us receptive to what is here, and give us an expectant heart that you mean to work through your word um, as we come to hear a word from you. Uh, It's in your son's name I pray, amen. As an introduction to this morning's text, I want to uh, point you to a particular letter from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, uh, letter eight. Before I go any further, some of you may not know what The Screwtape Letters is. That sounds really weird. It's a book by C.S. Lewis. Uh, He was a professor of English literature at Oxford, and he's probably better remembered for being just a hugely influential Christian thinker and writer in the 20th century. Uh, The basic premise of the book is this. Uh, A demon named Screwtape is writing letters to his demon nephew named Wormwood, 
and he's educating him on the sorts of spiritual matters that demons might be interested in. So he's providing him with specific instructions how he can undermine his patient, that is his human target, from pursuing God in the way that a person should. So in letter eight of the Screwtape letters, we read Screwtape explaining to his nephew Wormwood that he should realize his patient will experience ups and downs in this life. Screwtape calls these seasons troughs and peaks and says that they are a normal part of human life. And more to the point, he takes note of the fact that the enemy, that's what he calls God, the enemy, in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. God relies on the troughs more than on the peaks. Screwtape describes how God uses the troughs in our lives to test us and to give us an opportunity to exercise faith, practice obedience, and ultimately to be formed into more godly people. Although, of course, we stumble, but even in our stumblings, even Screwtape admits God is pleased. Toward the end of his letter, Screwtape writes these remarkable words to his nephew. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. I'm going to read that again. Screwtape says to his nephew, Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him, that is God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. If you were an Israelite who experienced captivity at the hands of the Babylonians and was subsequently deported to Babylon as an exile, even more so if you were a faithful Israelite who had been striving to keep the Lord's law and to honor him, and yet you still experience these things, how would you look round upon a how would you look round upon a universe from which every trace of God had seemed to vanish and still obey? How? That's what screw tape is talking about, right? But how would you do it? How will you do it in your life when you come to your own troughs, to your own dark valleys? Isaiah 51, 1 through 52, 12, uh, which is what my passage is a part of, it comes on the heels of the third servant song in the book of Isaiah, which I believe you all looked at last week. That's Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. So in that third servant song, at the end of it, we just read it actually in verses 10 and 11, an appeal is made to respond to the Lord on the basis of the work of his servant. And this appeal makes clear that to fear the Lord is to listen to his servant and to trust and rely on the Lord like the servant does. And the alternative in verse 11 is to rely on one's own devices, devices of one's own making, and it ultimately leads to experiencing the Lord's wrath and judgment. Now, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 51, the Lord turns to address the faithful, or what's called the righteous remnant within Israel. I'm going to be talking about that a little bit more later and defending that. But before I get to that, I want to say about this passage, one Old Testament scholar, uh, his name is Andrew T. Abernethy, I believe he teaches at Wheaton, he calls this section, uh, quote, an extended depiction of Zion's restoration, end quote. So in this section, the Lord speaks as if he will accomplish his promised plans for Zion on his own. But if you've been reading carefully, you're going to notice parallels between what God has already promised to do through his servant and what God says he will do here in this passage. 
This passage, then, is one in which God makes a promise of salvation to his people. He's assuring them of the trustworthiness of his word, and he's calling them to respond by trusting in him and in what he has said he will do. Now, in some ways, the world inhabited uh, by the original recipients of this morning's text was vastly different from our world today. At the same time, however, the experience of faithful Israelites living in Babylonian captivity is not so far removed from our day-to-day experience. In this present evil age, as God's people in many times and in many different ways, we will find ourselves walking in darkness, like the one described in Isaiah 51.10, who fears the Lord and listens to his servant. We experience loss and we see devastation. We may receive taunts and be shamed for trusting in God. And many Christians meet violent opposition from those who do not know God. This has been historically true of the church through the ages. And the effect this can easily have on us, of course, is for us to forget God's promises to us or to doubt that he'll actually keep his promises. Or we may be led to cower in fear in the face of such opposition, um, who seems so much more real to us than God. They're right before our eyes. God's solution to these very real threats and pressures in our lives is for us to listen to his voice, to listen to his promise of salvation. God's salvation is so much bigger than wiping away your sin and guilt as an individual and ensuring that one day you're going to be in heaven when you die. It includes that, but it's so much more than that. God's salvation is a mighty working of his, of his power that affects the entire created order. That's what we see in this passage, restoring it to its original purpose. It's a salvation that is for all peoples and all nations. And on top of all that, it is completely 100% sure to succeed, and it will last forever into eternity. This is God's salvation that he announces to his people. And if we're really listening to God's voice and considering his magnificent promise of salvation, even as we experience opposition and even as we suffer, we will be strengthened to live faithful lives, trusting in God and in his perfect son, and the servant, Jesus Christ, until we die or until he returns again. So this morning, my plan is to consider the first eight verses of Isaiah 51 under three headings. The first is a promise of restoration in verses 1 to 3. The second is a promise for all people in verses 4 to 6. And the third is a promise unshakable in verses 7 through 8. And then after this, we'll spend some focused time reflecting on how this passage applies to our lives. So the first heading, again, in verses 1 through 3, is a promise of restoration. A promise of restoration. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 3 again. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you. When I called him, he was only one. I blessed him and made him many. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and melodious song. The first two questions I want to consider are these. Who is speaking and who is being spoken to? The answer to the first question is simple enough. The person speaking is the Lord through his prophet Isaiah, of course. This is clear from verse 2, where it says, When I called him, that is Abraham, he was only one, I blessed him and made him many. 
We know that God is the one who called Abraham, making him into a nation through which all the nations of the world would be blessed, as we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Who the Lord is addressing is a more difficult question to answer. We might presume he is addressing the nation of Israel as a whole. After all, God's address is to my people and my nation in verse 4, which seems to suggest he is speaking to the Israelite nation in general. Upon closer inspection, however, I want to argue it becomes clear that the Lord is addressing not the house of Jacob as a whole, as in Isaiah 48, 1 through 2, because the nation as a whole remains largely estranged from God and is regarded by God as wicked. You can see that in Isaiah 48, 22. Rather, the Lord is addressing the righteous or the believing remnant within the nation of Israel. Those to whom he is speaking are the ones described in Isaiah 50, verse 10, which we already read, who Isaiah says will fear the Lord by listening to his servant. Isaiah, and thus God, means to comfort and encourage uh, this responsive people within the larger people. The larger people of Israel remain oblivious to what God is doing and is going to do, even as he announces it. This is abundantly clear in Isaiah 49, 14, through 53. I think you guys also looked at that last week. Uh, this, lar- this smaller nation, though, within the larger nation of Israel is identified in verse 1 as those who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. That is not what the nation as a whole is doing right now. One scholar notes that these verbs, pursue and seek, they're verbs of determination and commitment. To seek the Lord in this context It's not searching for something that's lost. That's what he says. It's not searching for something lost, but it's coming with all the determination of a concerned seeker to where the Lord is known to be. So these people aren't looking for God as if he's lost. God is announcing, this is where I'm at, and they are coming as concerned seekers to where God says he is. And in this sense, it's obedience. So the Lord is addressing people within the nation of Israel then who are faithfully seeking after him. The instruction of the Lord is in their hearts, as verse 7 says. And the Lord has a word for them. So what is that word? What is the Lord saying to these faithful listeners within the larger nation of Israel? And what is the content of his promise to them? Look back at verse 2 with me. We see that the Lord invites his people to remember his past dealings with their forefather, the patriarch Abraham and his wife Sarah. These two figures are likened to a rock and to a quarry, and the connotation is that they were lifeless and dry when the Lord visited them in his grace and gave them a child. And over time, of course, you know that that child turned into a great nation. The implication is, since God's past extravagant promise, which was unbelievable even to Abraham and Sarah, to some extent at different times, this past promise had been realized, so God's faithful people now should trust him to keep these new promises of restoration both from literal geographic exile through the hand of Cyrus, as well as from spiritual exile. The new promise specifically in view here is this. God will comfort his people, restoring their land. It says he's going to deal tenderly with their ruins and transform these desperate, lifeless places. It's going to prompt joy and gladness and the sound of song and music among the inhabitants. The reference to Eden in verse 3 hints that the promised restoration will be a restoration to physical beauty and fruitfulness of the land, yes. But even more than that, 
I believe it points to the removal of the curse pronounced against humanity at the fall. That is what describing it and comparing it to Eden would conjure in the mind of a listener. God is going to bring life to a place and to a people that has been weighed down by the curse of sin, which is death. This is the promise. So in verses 1 through 3, we see that promise, that promise of restoration. In verses 4 through 6, our second heading, we see a promise for all people. First, verses 4 through 6 serve to expand our understanding of the promise given in verses 1 through 3. So they read like this. Turn to it with me. Pay attention to me, my people, and listen to me, my nation, for instruction will come from me and my justice for a light to the nations. I will bring it about quickly. My righteousness is near. My salvation appears, and my arms will bring justice to the nations. The coasts and islands will put their hope in me, and they will look to my strength. Look up to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die like gnats. But my salvation will last forever, and my righteousness will never be shattered. What will the character of the Lord's promised salvation be, his promised restoration? What will be its defining qualities? These are the sorts of questions that verses 4 through 6 answer and that we're going to look at first. Now first, in these three verses, you may notice how the language uh, used in them uh, was previously used to describe the Lord's saving work through his servant. Uh, We're not going to look at every single parallel, but the point I want you to take away from this that you may have noticed is that the servant's acting is the Lord's acting. That is the argument in Isaiah that you would take away from this. Turning our eyes back to verse 4, we see the Lord once again enjoining his listeners to pay attention to what he's saying. He says that instruction will come from me, that is the Lord, and my justice for a light to the nations. These words should remind us of at least a couple prior passages in the book of Isaiah. Uh, I want to turn to the first one. You can go there with me. It's right at the beginning of the book in Isaiah chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, Verses 2 through 3, the language is incredibly similar. Isaiah 2, 2 through 3, we read, In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The second passage I want to point out that has a strong parallel is Isaiah 42.1, which you have covered in uh, the sermon series you guys are in. Uh, It's the beginning of Isaiah's first servant song, and we read this. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Instruction and justice. Here these words refer to revealed truth and taught as taught and decided by God. Revealed truth as taught and decided by God. The idea that Isaiah 51 is 
conjuring here is that God's authoritative revelation will go out from Zion. This will be a central aspect of his promised restoration that we learn in these verses. Verse 5 speaks of the Lord's righteousness, of his salvation, and of his arms bringing justice to the nations. And I want to talk about how we should understand these terms in relation to one another. Uh, Old Testament scholar J. Alec Matir is helpful here. Uh, He explains that righteousness is the quality of all that the Lord does on behalf of his people or his servant, whereas salvation is what the Lord does. Put another way, the term righteousness highlights the character or the quality of the Lord's saving work, while the term salvation refers more generally to the saving work itself. These two words, then, are really very closely related, and that proves true throughout Scripture. For the Lord always acts in accordance with his own character in all that he does, including his saving. And taken together, all these terms that describe the Lord's promise of restoration to his people, instruction, justice, righteousness, salvation, altogether, these terms point to an understanding that the Lord's promise of restoration will constitute what one scholar describes as, quote, a thorough reordering of human life among the nations. We're talking about a complete reordering. This isn't going to be a small, minute change. It is going to be a complete reordering. He continues, on the basis of God's own character, revealed in his law, expressed in his righteousness, and taking the form of salvation. I want to read that one more time because I think it's a good summary statement. So the Lord's promise will constitute what one scholar describes as, quote, a thorough reordering of human life among the nations. On the basis of God's own character, revealed in his law, expressed in his righteousness, and taking the form of salvation. The Lord's restoration will involve him delivering people in a way that's consistent with who he is. That's the idea. And it will entail him then ruling over the nations, administering perfect justice. The next question we want to ask is, who's to benefit from this lofty promise with all of its far-reaching implications? Who are the recipients of these blessings going to be? And in accordance with what we've already seen in the rest of the book of Isaiah, the good news of this salvation on behalf of God's faithful people is in fact good news for the nations at large. It is for the coasts and islands, meaning it's for, it's for all of those who will put their hope in the Lord, even to the most remote and far regions. Remember, the Lord has already said to his servant in Isaiah 49, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. The Lord is simply repeating his intention to extend salvation to all people here. One final thing I want to note in verses 4 through 6 is that in verse 6 we see a strong reassuring statement as to the lasting nature of the Lord's promise of salvation for all people. Real quickly, depending on what translation you're using, and my dad informed me that you guys are using ESV Scripture journal, so you definitely have a different translation. It says, part of verse 6 says, and its inhabitants, uh, I think you have, will die in like manner. Whereas what I read was, and its inhabitants will die like gnats. Without going into too much detail, because it would only interest like 2% of the people here. Either of these readings could be correct, but I think in like manner is actually the better one. 
So the idea is that just as the created order is transitory, it's really, from God's perspective, here for a moment, it's temporary and it's going to be gone. Just as that is true, the same is true of human life. So the Lord commands his people to look up at the heavens and look down at the earth beneath. In other words, to look at the whole created order because all of these things which we imagine to be permanent and unshakable are actually less durable, they're less reliable, they're less sure than God's promise of salvation coming true. God's words are unparalleled in their reliability and certainty. Which brings us quite naturally to our third heading in verses 7 through 8 which is a promise unshakable. A promise unshakable. And this portion of the text again begins with the Lord commanding his faithful ones to listen. So let's read verses 7 and 8 together again. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my instruction. Do not fear disgrace by men, and do not be shattered by their taunts. For moths will devour them like a garment. And worms will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will last forever, and my salvation for all generations. The first thing we learn from these verses is that the Lord's faithful people will experience opposition. The Lord's faithful people will experience opposition, and yet the Lord tells them not to fear. Why? I see two reasons. The first one is that God is not on the side of those who oppose his people. So their taunts will ultimately be short-lived. That's the first reason. Similar to the fate of those who oppose the Lord's servant in Isaiah 50, verse 9, in the end, opponents of the Lord's faithful people will be devoured like a garment by moths. They will be eaten uh, like wool by worms. To be honest, I'm not really sure what those metaphors mean? I mean, I understand what they mean, but I'm not sure why they were chosen, like what the significance is of a moth-eaten garment or worm-eaten wool, but I can tell it's not a good thing. The point is that those who oppose the Lord's faithful people will in the end perish, and their threats will amount to nothing. By way of illustration, uh, Nora, my niece, was talking to me about spiders, and she was relaying her fear of spiders. And she was talking, she had a really profound observation that she shared with me where she said, you know, once they're dead, their legs kind of curl up and you realize how small they actually are. So they look a lot more menacing when they're alive than once they're dead. And the same is true of the opponents of the Lord's people. Their taunts are these long legs, right, that are very, very real and they may like give a very visceral response to us. Uh, they cause fear in us, but from God's perspective, once they die, they, they curl up and you realize how small and harmless they really are. This is true of opponents of the Lord's people. But the second reason not to fear that we see is that his promise of salvation, the Lord's promise of salvation, in contrast to the lives of the opponents, it's for eternity. It will last forever. God commands his people not to fear disgrace by men, That includes their shaming words, their taunts, their insults, their reviling, because they will one day pass away and be no more, similar to the created order. God's saving character and his work of salvation, however, will endure forever. These things are permanent, secure, and utterly trustworthy. 
By way of closing, I want to consider four different points of application. Four different points of application. I think this passage has a lot to say for us uh, as Christians living in light of the full knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, The first point of application is to place your hope in the Lord and in his servant. We've seen in this passage that the Lord's promise of salvation is for all nations. It's a promise that extends way back to Abraham, to whom the Lord made the following promise in the very first book of the Bible. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And in the book of Isaiah, we see that the Lord has made his servant a light for the nations. And we know who that servant is. God, in his goodness, sent his son, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the sermon of the servant of the book of Isaiah, into the world to make a way for everyone to be a part of the promise of restoration that we see in today's passage. And if you come to God through Christ, trusting in his death on your behalf, trusting that he died in your place, he took your imperfect life on his shoulders, and that he credits his perfect life to you, then all of your brokenness can be redeemed into something beautiful. All of your failures and your inadequacies and all of the shameful things you have done that you would be afraid to say, they can be forgiven. In verse 5 of Isaiah 51, we read, the coasts and islands will put their hope in me, and they will look to my strength. My question to you this morning is this. What are you putting your hope in? Life is short. Your life is going to wear out like a garment like this passage talks about. It's going to pass away and vanish into the air like a mist. And whose strength are you looking to in the face of that fate, that inevitable fate that awaits us all? I'm here to plead with you to look to God's strength. If you don't know God's love for you in Jesus Christ and you want more information about that, you could take me or probably most people here aside and ask them more questions about it. I'm sure they would love to do that. It would be an honor. Or if you do know precisely what all this is about, but you know deep down in your heart of hearts that you've never truly given your life to God and you want to pray with someone, take me or someone else aside, please. We would love to do that. And this is not a shameful thing. Like, I've known this for so long, like it would be so embarrassing. It's not a shameful thing. Were you to come to the Lord this morning for salvation and admit that you have never truly surrendered your life to God, it would be a joyous thing and something to be celebrated. So many people would be honored to walk with you through the process and to hear your story and to answer any questions you might have. Today is the day to look to God's strength, not tomorrow, today. So the first application point is to place your hope in the Lord and in a servant. Second, I want us to consider this question as a point of application. What are you listening to? Who has your attention? I guess it's two questions. What are you listening to? Who has your attention? Hopelessness is not the only alternative to trusting in the Lord's promise. I want you to realize that. In reality, if we aren't listening to the Lord's promise, uh, we're probably not hopeless. What we're probably doing is looking to something or someone else as our hope or for our hope or for our sense of identity. 
We're probably not hopeless. Some of us get there, and that is an outcome. But most of us, if we're exchanging hope in the Lord and listening to his voice, we're actually probably looking to something or someone else. Some of us, in response to today's passage, need to take it as a call to slow down and really listen, really listen to God as a regular rhythm of life, whether for the first time or something that we're getting back to. God means for us to taste and to see that he's good. By that, I mean that he wants us to experience his goodness on a personal level, individually. Some of, ourselves have devoted, some of us have devoted ourselves to idols of the heart, whether it be an unhealthy community of people, a sinful pattern of addiction, or simply money and the stuff it can buy. Because we have ceased to bask in God's love for us. And we're convinced that this other thing, or that other person, or this other group of people will love us. Listening to God looks like spending unhurried, intentional time with him. That's a key part of it. I want to be clear to say that you don't become good with God by spending a specific amount of time with him each day, uh, reading your Bible and praying. The goal isn't to check a box. The point is that being with God, spending time enjoying his presence meditating on his beauty and goodness as revealed in scripture and nature, and then pouring out your heart to him in praise, giving thanks to him, making your requests known to him. The point is that this is what will give you abundant life and provide true satisfaction. There are no shortcuts to that. Everything else will fail. Nothing else can substitute for God. So I want to tell you that God can handle your brokenness. Maybe for some of you, that's what's keeping you from coming to God. He can handle your brokenness. He can handle your hurt. Even the degree to which you've substituted intimacy with him and listening to his voice for other lesser voices, he can handle that and invites you to come. So turn back to God's voice if you've strayed from it. He welcomes you with open arms. The third application point is short. It's this. Expect opposition. Expect opposition. Look back at Isaiah 50, verses 8 through 9 with me. Should be just a turn of the page if you have your Bibles open. And look how the Lord's servant, that is Jesus Christ, responds to taunts in Isaiah 50, 8 through 9. This is actually the servant speaking. He says, The one who vindicates me, that is God, is near. Who will contend with me? Let us confront each other. Who has a case against me? Let him come near me. In truth, the Lord God will help me. Who will condemn me? Indeed, all of them will wear out like a garment. A moth will devour them. And the very next verse, Isaiah 50 and verse 9, implies that those who identify with the servant will share experiences similar to his. And then in today's passage, verses 7 through 8 definitely confirm this. We too will find ourselves walking in darkness without light. We, too, will be shamed and taunted at times for identifying with God and his servant, Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The question is not whether or not we will uh, be persecuted. The question is whether or not we will commit ourselves to the Lord and trust in him through such experiences, like the servant does. The question is not, am I going to experience opposition in this life? 
Am I going to be sometimes shamed, taunted, etc.? The question is, how am I going to respond? Am I going to imitate the servant? Our response to taunts and shaming that we experience due to our association with Jesus Christ is sure to be influenced by the voices we're listening to. If we as Christians in America in the year 2021 are primarily listening to culture warriors whose top priority is to recover cultural power uh, as evangelicals in America, we're likely going to respond to our opponents with vitriol, fighting fire with fire, lashing out, looking to humiliate others, relishing every chance we get to mock our enemies. But hear me, this sort of behavior is not in accordance with the fruit of the Spirit. It is out of step with the gospel. I want to read to you from First Peter. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's the Apostle Peter talking about Jesus, whom we are called to imitate. If you don't make a habit of listening to God, you can be sure that other voices are going to fill the void. For us as Christians, seeking to live lives as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, that should be the goal in a fallen world. Listening to God's voice for us is crucial. It's crucial if we are going to resist becoming a fearful, defensive people and instead keep our eyes focused on the goal. And the goal is to make disciples of all nations. That's the great commission that the Lord has given us. It's confronting our culture with the truth of the gospel. Yes, absolutely, and calling them to repentance. I don't mean to downplay that, but it's also treating all people with dignity and respect. We will not be able to succeed in this task if God's voice isn't the loudest voice in our lives. The final application point I want us to consider is to trust the Lord's promises. Trust the Lord's promises. And I have two great reasons this morning why you should trust the Lord's promises that I want to share with you today. The first is what we've already seen in the passage so clearly. His promises are sure. Look back at verse 6 again and really think about what the logic, about the logic of what God is saying. God is saying that the created order, everything that we see around us, this world, is less secure, less permanent than his promise of salvation. That means, by extension, there's a greater chance of you jumping up in the air and not coming back down again than there is of God going back on his word. There's a greater chance of the law of gravity being broken at any given moment than there is of God failing to keep his promises to you in Christ. My question is, do you believe that? That's a question for myself, too. We have to remind ourselves of this family of God and ask God to help our unbelief. Do you remember in Mark's gospel, the man who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Is this your prayer? Or has this been your prayer? Do you pray this to God? I know that I need to. And you need to, too. I don't pray this prayer enough. The second uh, great reason why you should trust the Lord is that the Lord is compassionate and kind. And you can see that behind all the the beautiful things he's doing in this passage, administering justice to the nations and through the servant songs we've seen. Um, But still, I think we can very easily read a passage like today's and lose sight of how God feels about us personally uh, in the middle of it or as personally as individuals in it. 
I'm here to tell you that the same God who, were promised, who promises to accomplish this large-scale work of salvation on behalf of the entire created order and on behalf of his people as a whole has time for you personally and individually within that group. He cares and he is near to you, singular. God doesn't like the idea of saving a group of people but recoil and disgust at the thought of saving you. I think someone needs to hear that this morning. God doesn't like the idea of saving this group of people but recoil in disgust at the thought of saving you. How do I know this? It's a pretty big claim. I know this because I look at Jesus and when I do, when I, do I see what God is like. The clearest picture we have of the Lord of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. The Apostle John writes, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Is John hating on Old Testament revelation? No, he's saying Jesus is the clearest revelation of God and compared to Jesus, it's almost like we haven't seen God at all. He's God made flesh. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. There isn't a Jesus in the New Testament that the Lord in the Old Testament isn't like. So I know when I read a passage like today's that this Lord who makes this grand promise of salvation is a Lord who is near to the brokenhearted and the weary and the worn down because that's how Jesus was. This Lord has time for you individually. He wants to reach out his hand and touch you and bring comfort and healing into your life. He loves you and he has time for you. God has time for you. He knows your heart, and he wants to heal you. He is near in this very moment if you would cry out to him. <sighs> Screwtape, in his very next letter to Wormwood, letter 9, tells his nephew, quote, Talk to him, that is Wormwood's patient, his human patient, his target, talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. A life of moderate engagement with God, I should have said end quote. <laughs> this is no longer a demon speaking, it's me. A life of moderate engagement with God as a Christian is dangerous. God's person and works cannot be shattered. We've seen that in this passage, but we can be shattered. We can lose hope and despair and stop listening to God and trust his promises to us. God's promises to us must be the source of our hope. They have to be what animate us and drive us and inspire us as we go in and as we go out. God has promised us the renewal of all things. We saw that in verses 1 through 3. He's promised us a place in this people from every tribe and language uh, and nation for all eternity. And best of all, he's promised us undiluted, completely unmarred, perfect intimacy with himself, our creator. He's promised to wipe every tear from our eyes and somehow to heal us from all the hurt we've experienced and all the things we've lost in this life. 
He's going to usher in an eternity marked by perfect joy and commitment or in contentment. Look, God says, I am making everything new. Look, I am making everything new. The question for you is, are you listening to his voice? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that even now you would move among your people here by your spirit uh, and comfort and encourage and convict uh, and warn and rebuke and do all those things perfectly in a way that I can try, but only you can truly affect in the hearts of your people. I pray that uh, those who have heard a challenging word Uh, that they would respond in obedience and that they would share it with someone. Um, That this wouldn't be a thing where we feel guilty for a moment and then cover it up with distractions, but that we would confess our sins to one another, uh, be inspired to really strive after real change in our lives. I pray for those who are worn down this morning and brokenhearted and who have heard some of this stuff in Isaiah and thought, man, this is really beautiful poetry, It's amazing what God's going to do. It seems hard to believe, and I'm not sure if he loves me. I pray that they would know that you have time for them as an individual and that they would cry out to you um, and be willing to be broken. I pray that this has been a word of comfort to them and that even now you would comfort them by your spirit in their heart. Um, I pray that you would bless this congregation through the rest of the sermon series on Isaiah 40 through 66. And that you would uh, make us a people who always have ears to hear. And that we would want to imitate your son, Jesus Christ, uh, in all things. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Isaiah's vision is such a wonderful and unique portion of scripture. Uh, I have so enjoyed this. I think for a benediction, let's sing a song. I think we just sang.